Whitney Shearer's novel, The Age of Light, takes us from the glamour of Paris in the 1930s to the horror of World War II battlefields in a startlingly modern love story based on the true life of fashion model and gifted photographer Lee Miller. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler. And today we have a treat, Whitney Shara's debut novel. I know we usually do series, but this is a little bit special. It's a mesmerizing portrait of a true woman, Lee Miller, and her self-transformation from muse to artist. She's the girl who, in her 20s, the former Vogue cover girl who said, I'd rather take a photograph than be in one. As usual, we've got free book treats for you. This week, it's historical freebies. Details for where to download these books on the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, you can encourage my endeavours on this show. We're reaching nearly 250 episodes now, and it does cost time and money for me to put these on every week. By becoming a Patreon supporter for less than a cup of coffee a month, you'll receive exclusive bonus content like hearing Whitney answer the getting to know you five quickfire questions. That's part of the exclusive content on Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading. If you can't see your way to doing that, then how about just supporting one episode at Buy Me a Coffee? dot com forward slash Jenny Wheel Big X cross for a kiss on the cheek. But now that's enough for the housekeeping. On with the show. Hello there, Whitney, and welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, look, there's a couple of aspects about Age of Light, which is your book that we're talking about today. Fantastic introduction to the life of a former Vogue model who became a very progressive photographer in the 1920s, working through until the 1940s. It's a debut novel, and usually on binge reading, we don't do debut novels because we like to have a backlist. If people want to go and investigate the author, there's a whole lot of books that they can read. But this one I thought was really special. It attracted me. I'd heard of Lee Miller, but didn't know very much about her. But also it does have some slightly hunting aspects. Lee had a very unpredictable and in terms of the way she lived some of it, unconventional life. So I'm just letting readers know who might prefer their um, stories just a little bit more sugar-coated, that there are a few challenging aspects of her life that are covered in this story. It was picked as the best book by many sites and it was a Boston Globe pick of the year. People have written some wonderful things about it, so you can be very proud of it. So how did you come to write this story about Lee Miller? Well, let's see. Came to this story, I think initially because of a love of photography that I've had ever since high school, I would say. I've spent a lot of time doing photography in dark rooms over the years. I'm not a professional photographer, but it's a passion of mine. And so 
I went to a museum exhibit at a museum just north of where I live in Boston, and the exhibit was Man Ray and Lee Miller, Partners in Surrealism. And I went to it because I loved photography, because I'd studied Man Ray, loved his work. And I showed up there and walked into the exhibit, having never heard of Lee Miller. And pretty much the second that I walked into the exhibit, I was just blown away by her work and her story and, and just this unbelievable talent that I had never heard of. So I go to the exhibit. I'm blown away by her work. And I'm also really frustrated that she is not a name that had come up in all of the photography classes and art history classes that I'd taken in college. So that's really where it started for me was this merging of just fascination with her work and her life and this aggravation, I guess you would say, over not having heard of her before. Now, but for those who haven't even heard of Man Ray, tell us who he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not actually that that well-known of a name either, unless you are a photography buff, I guess. But he was one of the foremost surrealist artists during the 20s and 30s. He started out doing Dada and then turned into a surrealist. And he's best known for these photographs called rayographs that he made, where he took objects and he exposed them to light directly onto photographic paper. So they look like collages. They're really interesting. And at the time, they were very cutting edge because it was a different way of thinking about the point of photography. So he did those. And then he also, he didn't technically invent it, but he's known as the inventor of this technique called solarization, which was very surreal. It was very much part of the surrealist movement. You take a photograph and you expose the negative to a little bit of light during the developing process. And it gives the image this ghostly effect, like a line of brightness around the dark parts of the image. And it's beautiful. He was the first person to make that a known photographic technique and refine that, which is something that he did with Lee Miller. But those are the main reasons that people or him, you know, aside from his just massive artistic talent. <laughs> and he had a lot of his career in Paris in the 20s, didn't he? I think moved back to the States later in his life. But uh, the yeah. keynotes of his artistic career were probably in that very pioneering stage in Paris. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He started off, he's from New York, and he was in New York and New Jersey for a little bit, but it wasn't really until he moved to Paris that his career really started to take off. And I think that says as much about him and his work as it does about Paris at that time, especially the early 20s. He moved to Montparnasse. He was surrounded by all of these other artists making all of this cutting edge work. And it's Paris between the wars. It's that period of time where it's just this artistic and literary flowering. It feels like nothing has ever quite matched that ever since. That's right. This is what people call biofiction. It's reimagining the lives of real people. And that's been done quite a lot in recent years to regain women's stories in history, because often the stories that are chosen are women who have either married or worked with famous men. She comes to Paris as a beautiful young woman, former Vogue model, escaping really, wanting not wanting to do any more modeling and be a passive vessel, but to do some work of her own, to discover who she is. And they team up. She starts out working as his assistant. Tell us a bit about that developing relationship. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you've done a good job of beginning to describe it. She was 22 years old. She moves to Paris. She's this beautiful woman who was literally on the cover of Vogue magazine when she was a model. That was her first modeling job. But she hated modeling. She hated the feeling of objectification that it gave to her. So she moved to Paris uh, all alone to start over. And you know, she had connections and she had had this really jaw-dropping beauty, which she used to her advantage and definitely knew how to make the most of. So she shows up with the idea of working with Man Ray, goes to his studio, knocks on his door, and at first he says no, because he says he doesn't take on students, but then not very long thereafter, you know, he, he comes around and says, well, maybe. <laughs> and... She worked as his assistant and student in the studio, but was also almost immediately his lover as well. And they embarked on this really passionate love affair that played out over the course of a few years. And during that period of their lives, they both were making some of the best work of their careers. That was really what drew me to the story was just this sense of what it's like to be both in love with somebody and making art with somebody and how those two things are connected and feed off of each other in these interesting ways. And then in their case, both of these people are extremely talented, very driven, very ambitious. And so of course, as the relationship starts playing out and Man Ray, who initially has all the power, becomes more and more obsessed with Lee Miller, she starts to gain power over him. And she also starts to become a better artist in her own right. And so then the power balance shifts. And what does that do both to their romance, but also to their love affair? Yeah, you mentioned solarization. We don't want to have any spoilers in the book, but it is something that they discovered together. And you've got a very interesting section which really goes into quite a bit of detail about how that came about. Do you think that your idea and understanding of that discovery is completely historically accurate or did you dream up a lot of it? Well, in that particular case, I think it's pretty accurate (laughs) for the most part. I mean, certainly the descriptions of how they discovered solarization and the process of solarization is all incredibly accurate. I checked with the photography historian and all of that. The details about Lee Miller's involvement in the discovery come primarily from a series of interviews that she did later in her life, where she would talk about it in magazines and other places. Can we trust Lee Miller's own memory of her own life? Who knows? She had a tendency, I think, to make herself the hero of her own story. And I think, you know, we all do that (laughs) to a certain degree, but she absolutely did that. And I think especially when you think about her telling these stories about her life later, only a couple years before she passed away, like in her 70s, you have to wonder, well, did it really happen like this? But there's no, because there's no way to know, I wanted to stick with the story that she told about herself. And so that's, yes. and that's yeah. pretty much what I, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it does have some role to play in the way that they finally did break up. Although that was probably inevitable anyway, because he wasn't going to be able to see her as a total equal. I mean, there was quite an age discrepancy as well, wasn't there? He was very much the senior partner in the relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. He was 17 years older than her. He, as I said just a minute ago, he started out with all the power. So he had the age, he had the power, but she had the beauty and he became obsessed with her and he was extremely jealous and controlling. And she was somebody who did not want to be controlled. So 
that was how the power shifted to her over the course of their relationship was that his jealousy got the better of him. So that is all just so fascinating to me. How can somebody who was so powerful as he was be brought to his knees by this woman who really started out not having any of the power in the relationship? Yes. But that's only a small part of the story because it's only a couple of years really of her life in her 20s. She goes on to have the most amazing wartime career. She manages to elbow her way in as a photographer with the American forces when they start to reinvade Europe and take Europe at the end of the Second World War. And she becomes one of the original primary photographers in some of those dreadful camps like Buchenwald and Dachau. Your book really indicates that it probably left her with what we now call PTSD. It was horrific, but it was also something she really felt passionately about telling the world about, wasn't it? Absolutely. And I think this is part of what makes her such a fascinating and ultimately tragic figure. Part of what makes her fascinating is all of the work that she did during the war, which is incredible. If you've seen pictures from World War II, you've probably seen pictures taken by Lee Miller, even if you haven't known that you've seen them. One of her most famous photos is a photo that she staged of herself taking a bath in Hitler's bathtub after Hitler had fled Munich at the end of the war. And if you haven't seen that photo, it's worth Googling and checking it out because it's just incredible. But what happened to her is that taking these photos took a huge toll on her. And the trauma that she endured seeing all of these things, which was layered over other trauma that she had experienced throughout her life in her childhood and teenage years. And so it impacted her in a way that I think was even more painful than it might have been even for somebody else. So after the war, she ended up stopping making art. And she took all of her photographs and she boxed them up into cardboard boxes and she heaved them up to the attic of her home and then never talked about making them again. I mean, truly, she didn't talk to her own son about making art, which is crazy when you think about how it was her entire life and how talented she was. So for me, that was one of the things, the central questions about her. How could somebody who was as ambitious, as confident, as driven as Lee Miller was, stop making art? So when I was writing the novel, I started at this point post-war. And so the first chapter takes place there where she's struggling from PTSD. She's dealing with alcoholism. She's a mess. <laughs> and she's grappling with not being able to work anymore. And I wanted to put that scene into the reader's mind so that that question is in your mind the whole time you're reading the book. Like, how did this woman get to this point? Where did she start? And how did she end up here? And it's not really a question that can be answered in any definitive way, but the novel for me is a way to try to understand how she did end up where she ended up. And so I have moments of her war photography in the book, but I have them appear in these very short little chapters that I started to think of it as like little pieces of shrapnel within the larger narrative. So you're reading along, learning about her time in Paris, and then all of a sudden you come across this chapter about the war that just pierces through the surface of that other story. So that was how I thought about structuring the book and using that structure to try to answer that question about how she ended up where she did. Mm. Is it correct that she actually destroyed quite a lot of her own wartime photographs because she said she didn't want people to see what she'd seen. 
She did destroy some of them, although I think my understanding is that she didn't destroy the negatives. Yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that most of the negatives are still all in existence. And her son, Lee Miller's son, Anthony Penrose, has been digitizing all of those and making a very complete record of all of that work that she did. That brings us to another interesting point, because you don't really mention about the son in the book. And that raised some criticism from the New York Times because you hadn't made any mention of that. And it addresses that issue of for a writer of historical fiction, what to put in and what to leave out. I imagine you felt a bit irritated when you read those comments. And what would lead your, you to make that decision of leaving him out? Because it seems now that I've had a look around Google that he has played a huge role in her life post her death. Tell us about that relationship. I do find that irritating. My response to that is, I'm not writing a biography. That wasn't my project, you know? (laughs) And so to me, when you're writing historical fiction, what you're doing is you're looking at somebody's entire life and there's so much. You could tell any story you wanted to tell. So I learned everything I could about her. And then I realized that what I wanted to tell was How does somebody who started out so ambitious end up where she did? And so to me, that's a story of an artistic journey. I mean, in my opinion, the best historical fiction that I read does this kind of thing where you're taking a life and you're paring it down. And from that paring down, you're finding the story. And so for me, it wasn't important that she went to Egypt and it wasn't important that she had another marriage. That wasn't part of this particular story. That would be another fantastic novel about her, though. You could write 10 novels about Lee Miller and and not be done. (laughs) (laughs) And the son, tell us about the son. He's an incredible guy who has devoted his entire life to bringing her memory back and and making her known to everybody, which I think is absolutely marvelous. My understanding of his childhood based on the essays of his that I've read, is that it was really hard to have Lee Miller as as his mother. She was a piece of work. <laughs> and not only that, she was a challenging mother, but she also didn't tell him that she was a photographer. So it wasn't until she was practically on her deathbed that she revealed to him that she had done all of this photography throughout her life. And so then from that moment on, after she passed away, he devoted his life to bringing all of that work back into the light. I think he's to be celebrated for that work. I really do. The man that she did marry that was his father, the second husband, he was of blue blood, aristocratic family, I think, wasn't he? It sounds as if she married men who were very much full of themselves. I mean, I read that he was completely unfaithful to her and even the fact that the son could not be aware that his mother had taken photographs indicates the father didn't talk about it either. That's such a good point. There's There were two parents, you know, one of them could have brought this up, even if the other one didn't want to. So yeah, who knows what was going on there. I think that both of his parents were very distant and more concerned perhaps with their own stuff that was going on than they were with child rearing. You mentioned she had a battle with alcoholism. She did manage to overcome that, didn't she? But never really came back into the creative drive. Yeah, I don't know if I would say she totally overcame it. I guess she did in the sense that she didn't die of alcoholism. She died of cancer. But my understanding is that she did drink heavily for most of her life. She went through a fallow period creatively, but then she ended up 
channeling her create creative impulses into cooking in this way that's really absolutely fascinating and wonderful. She was kind of the Julia Child of Southern England. <laughs> and she invented a lot of recipes. She entered the recipes into all these different contests. And she liked to think of her cooking as surrealist, which is so interesting and fun. There's a cookbook you can buy that has her recipes in it. And some of them are just unbelievable. There's one called Cauliflower Breasts which is just a cauliflower cut in half in a sort of pink sauce with a little, I don't know what it is, like a pimento or something, you know, kind of sitting on the top. So you can imagine <laughs> so it's sort of evocative anyway. So she did all sorts of really fun, wild, creative stuff like that. <laughs> Look, we are starting to run out of our time together. And I do want to move on to talking a little bit about your wider work and also your taste in reading. Had you already been writing fiction before you tackled this project? So I had been, but this was the first novel that I had ever really, truly attempted. Up until this point, I've written short stories primarily. I have a graduate degree in creative writing, and I did a collection of short stories during school. And then I worked at a creative writing center in Boston for a number of years. So I was doing less writing, but still immersed in that world as much yes. as I could be. Yes. And yeah. ha have you got any more projects on at the moment? Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> I'm working on my second novel. And it's, it's going pretty well. Time is ticking away. <laughs> but about halfway done with one book, which I have set aside because I got this crazy idea for this other book. So now I have two things that I'm juggling and we'll see which one I finish first. <laughs> you can't give us any more details than that. Are they historical oh, novels? Well, so one of them is a historical novel set in 1940s Hollywood. And the other one is a contemporary novel, very different. I don't even know what to call it. Like a, like sort of a comic novel set in contemporary time. Oh, great. Yeah. Look, wouldn't he as reader, this is the joys of binge reading. We like to ask our authors what they're reading and if they've got recommendations for our own listeners. And primarily in the popular fiction area, because that's what a lot of our listeners are interested in. So what do you like to read and what recommendations would you make? Well, I love reading any kind of literary fiction. I read very widely. I love anything with really good sentences. Recently, I really loved Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mendel. That was just one of those books that I, I loved it while I was reading it, but I can't stop thinking about it. It was so good. And what else? Let's see. I, I just finished Candy House by Jennifer Egan not too long ago with, if you know, A Visit from the Goon Squad. This book is a little bit of a follow-up. It has some of the same characters doing different stuff in it. So that's that's a fun, and she's a master. She's just a genius. So that was excellent. And then what else? Oh, I enjoyed The Foundling by Anne Leary, which is a piece of historical fiction, sort of commercial historical fiction that came out like maybe two months ago. And that it was excellent too. Just really immersed me in the world. So Great. Fantastic. Yeah. What advice do you like to give to new writers starting out? And what in those years when you were helping at the Creative Fiction Center did you see was the biggest problem that new writers face? Oh my gosh. Well, that's a, two hard questions. It's a topic in itself. <laughs> um, I, I will say one thing that happened when I was working at this creative writing center is, so this, I mean, I worked there for years and years back before people could register online for anything. So people would call on the phone and they would register to take writing workshops. And one of my jobs was to help them pick the right class. And without fail, 
<laughs> if someone called and said, hi, I want to take a class and I'm really a good writer. I'm just, I'm so good. I'm a master fiction writer. Without fail, that person was not a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> the people who were good writers were always the people who were humble, who were like, I don't know, I'm worried, you know, because I think that in order to just work and work and work like you have to do for all these years on your writing, you have to not think that you're good enough or else you're not going to keep making it better. <laughs> so we always used to laugh about that when people would call and say, oh, I'm, I'm the best writer. And it's like, mm, no, actually, you probably aren't. <laughs> but I will say, I'll, to a new writer, think putting in the time is really worth it. And I know that people are always hungry, of course, to get an agent and to get your book out in the world and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously that's why you're doing the work. But it's so hard to get an agent and it's so hard to get your work out in the world that I think putting in that time and and really making your, especially your first book, but really all your books, the best book that you can write, it's worth it. Because if you put your work out there before it's as good as you can make it, it, it may not get picked up and you may have lost that opportunity that you could have had if you had just kept on working. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, a, a rephrasing of the advice that, someone gave recently which was that thing of number one your first draft is simply that a first draft just get a first draft done and then you've got something to work on how many drafts do you normally write <laughs> a lot <laughs> I mean I write a lot it took me almost seven years to write the age of light which is a long long time granted I was working full-time but it took me a while and I I must have written I don't know eight or nine drafts, they all kind of merge in on one another at some point, but a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got that feeling as you were talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I think. <laughs> so you've given us an idea about what's next for you. Do you like interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I do. I love interacting with readers. One of the greatest joys ever was going on book tour. I loved it so much. And then as far as online, you can find me lately. I haven't been a little bit less active online, but I, I'm trying to get back into it. I love Instagram. That's probably the best place to find me. W Sharer is my handle there. I'm on Facebook sometimes too, and Twitter, not so much. So Instagram is, it, you know, it's a photography site. So I guess that kind of makes sense, but that's the best place to find me. <laughs> and are you still doing photography? Just as a hobby, yeah. what I loved about photography was being in the dark room. I like that more actually, like digital photography is not as fun for me. So I have this dream of building a dark room down in my basement someday and, and getting back into that kind of work again. It'd be fun. Marvellous. Look, thanks so much, Whitney, for your time. We'll look forward to the next one when it comes. It might be a year or two yet. <laughs> I know, hopefully not too many more years. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I appreciate it. On Binge Reading next week, Julie McElwain on Encore, our program where we interview authors that have already been on the show about their latest book. Julie talks about Shadows of Time, the fifth book in her Kendra Donovan series about the FBI agent that gets time travelled back to Regency England. That's it for today. Thanks so much for being with us and happy reading. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. 
We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests.